Welcome to the very, very first episode of Shielded Transactions. Um, and this is a Zcash Foundation-sponsored sp Faucet podcast with top cryptography researchers, privacy activists, regulators, DeFi entrepreneurs, consumers, and more on why and how Shielded Transactions should be part of our lives and what we risk by giving them up. So thank you so much to the Zcash Foundation for allowing us to host this series. Thank you also to the Smart Contract Research Forum for helping us edit and produce the podcast. And thank you to Foresight Intelligent Corporation Group for initiating the series during last year's program. And thank you now for joining. So you're kind of behind the scenes uh, of the podcast. I'll be leading with a few questions and perhaps at the end of time, hopefully we get to a few of your questions as well. Um, and be, be mindful that these will be on the podcast that will be, uh, that will be released. Okay, cool. Uh, welcome, uh, Andrew, to the series. You're our first guest. Very exciting. Uh, so maybe just to share a few words about you. You're an assistant professor at the University of Illinois and uh, more specifically in the electrical and computer engineering department and an affiliate in computer science. And you're also an associate director at the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Contracts. Um, the IC3 and a board member of the Zcash Foundation. And uh, the, you're, as the director of the Descent Best Systems Lab, your research really focuses broadly on computer security, uh, but also really on the, the design of secure decentralized systems and cryptocurrencies. Uh, you are contributing and I really quite, uh, to quite a few technical programs, programming languages and cryptography and distributed computing. How I met you was at the Financial Cryptography Conference in Kudastau and now a few years ago already. Um, and uh, more, more, more particularly at the evening, they always had a session where people could give like five minute little talks and you read out this really fantastic poem that uh, you produced, which I'll share in the chat and hopefully also in the podcast notes. And it's called If I Heart Forked, The Doxing of Satoshi. I'll only read out like maybe three lines, but it goes like, if I Hard fork, would he mind it? Would he mind it if I forked it? Would he mind it? Would Satoshi, would Satoshi, would would he mind it? If Satoshi, if I hard forked, if I hard forked, if Satoshi, would he mind it if I forked it? If, if I forked it, if Satoshi, would he mind it if Satoshi, if Satoshi, if I soft fork, if I hard forked, if Satoshi, if Satoshi, if I soft forked, if I soft fork, would he mind it? And would you mind it if I had forked? And it goes on and on. And it, it, it's, it's really quite the beautiful poem. I'll share more info here in the chat. But for now, we'll focus on cheated transactions. Um, so thank you so, so much for joining. Perhaps uh, to bring us up to speed, you know, I'll um, be leading with a few questions and you can kind of pick and choose uh, the ones that you want to spend more time on and the ones that you want to spend less time on. Um, there's different questions that like different, uh, yeah, directed to, uh, I think, a few different focus areas. But in a nutshell, perhaps bring us up to speed on just What's happening right now uh, in uh, private transactions? Like, how are we looking geopolitically or on a US basis? Um, what's going on? Should we be worried uh, at all? <laughs> or are we doing quite an okay job? Yeah, thank you so much for that cool introduction. It's neat to um, uh, see you all here. And um, yeah, I'm pretty happy for this uh, opportunity to chat with this group. I didn't realize this would be the first of uh, uh, the podcast series, but um, I, I, I tried to read up on the, the the group. I don't know so much about it, um, but I recognize a whole lot of you, so it's cool to be here. Um, I, I have something that I wanted to start with um, before catching up on the shielded transactions, but it, but it kind of feeds into it. Um, uh, I, I saw that the premise of this group, beyond um, some topics I recognize, like uh, blockchain technology, is um, that encouraging new kinds of cooperation. And so I... Um, I wanted to, I don't know if you're familiar with um, this uh, uh, paper, but I wanted to explain it a bit. It's um, a related work I, I like talking about, but I, I haven't come back to in a while. I was trying to take a bigger picture of um, where some of the cryptography technology I think will most be useful. And um, this paper is from Behavioral Economics. It's called Directed Altruism uh, versus Enforced Reciprocity. This is Directed Altruism and Enforced Reciprocity. And... Um, You know, the, the, the premise of this relates to um, understanding better the, the fundamentals of how cooperation works, especially in ways that um, kind of play off topics like uh, anonymity and, and fine-grained information disclosure, which is where the, you know, the shielded transactions are headed. So it's um, really, this is a great abstract. So if you're following around, you, you might be able to um, follow along with this, but, you know, I'll explain the, the part that I think is the most inspiring here. Um It basically says there's three explanations for um, the cooperative behavior. Like cooperative behavior, you see it in um, like people cooperate with each other, even complete strangers, more than you know pure game theory would predict. But otherwise, we don't have great models for, for how that works. Why pe people cooperate? 
So there's uh, like three kinds of explanations for this that are, are kind of tiers on each other. So one is baseline altruism. And that's like uh, when you'll cooperate with complete anonymous strangers uh, on the internet. Um, you know, someone random in your community. Um, there's enforced reciprocity, which is, I think, the um, uh, standard tit-for-tat kind of reasoning that the reason you cooperate is because you're likely to encounter or, or the reason you're more likely to cooperate with friends, people you know, rather than total strangers is because you're likely to encounter them again. So you can uh, respond based on how cooperative they are uh, when you meet them, uh, say, this first time. And the third explanation is this um, directed altruism in the middle, which says that you are more likely to be cooperative with friends, but even in a case where there's no ability for you to play tit for tat with them, somehow, you know, not that you're never going to see them again, but you know who they are, but um, no information about your interaction is going to, to leak to them. And so what they wanted to do was make this experiment. It's a behavioral economics, like lab experiment. So like, you know, $10 uh, uh, rewards for college students participating. Um, what I found interesting, you know, in this is this is an economics paper, no cryptography, and it's from 2007. So it predates uh, uh, the blockchain excitement. But they have a really cool uh, experiment that involves anonymity. So baseline altruism would be really easy to, uh, that's straightforward to measure in the lab experiments. You just, um, you know, you play like a dictator game or a prisoner's dilemma game, and you don't see the person that you're matched with. So you don't have any idea who they are. And um, the enforced reciprocity is also pretty straightforward to, um, uh, to, to capture in this behavioral economics setting, because that's the ordinary setting where you see who you're playing against, and there's someone who's in your social circle. So you're playing against your friend. Um, they lose the prisoner's dilemma game. They know who you are, so they can uh, you know, get back at you after you, you all go home and back. Um, and so you wouldn't think that it would even be really feasible to capture the directed altruism uh, setting in the experiment because it seems to have this conflict of you want to have information about how trusting you are, cooperative you are to, to um, people in your social circle, to your friends. But any setting where any information leaks about that, where they show up and play the game and you know learn that they, they played with you, that would seem to then reveal, you know, that that brings all of the reciprocity enforcement back in. Uh, so the, the solution that they came up to it is kind of an anonymity technology. I mean, it's simple in the setting they did it. It's not, um, it's not decentralized or trustless, uh, but they basically said, give us your inputs in the form of this uh, unfolded, expanded game. Basically say which move in the prisoner's dilemma or dictator game um, you would pick if you were matched with, uh, you know, these hundred different people from within and without your social circle. And then um, they only selected a subset of those to actually uh, carry out the instructions according to it. So the net result of this is you, you, you join the game, you make an, a bunch of inputs, basically like a rating for every one of your friends, meaning will you cooperate with them? And then at the end of the game, you get a total amount of reward and uh, you don't learn which other friends matched against you and you don't learn which friends even um, uh, uh, your choices ended up having an effect on their, their overall reward. And, you know, the results basically put these, you know, in order. You're more likely to be cooperative and trusting of your friends than of total strangers. And predictably, perhaps you're more likely to cooperate uh, when matched with your friends in the setting that your friends, you know, will learn that you did it in the enforced reciprocity setting. But what they still found is that there's um, some degree to which you're more likely to cooperate with friends you know than you will with um, total strangers, even in a setting where those friends you cooperate with will never know whether or not you cooperated with them. They'll, they'll be um, you know, completely unable to enforce anything. So it's not a tit for tat game. So it's a kind of, uh, you know, force to cooperate that's beyond what's captured by just um, tit for tat settings. And the reason why I brought this up in the context of uh, the shielded transaction questions is um, you know, I, I think that this basically points to kind of a, a important potential that if we use more kind of a creativity or inspiration, we can see how um, shielded transactions kinds of platforms um, could support this because it's basically about um, you know a, a 
it suggests that there's opportunities for applications to make use of essentially uh, trust-sensitive information between uh, users, but that only makes sense in a context where that information isn't just uh, published and leaked. So maybe I'll, I'll pause there. That was a, a tangent and an intro, but um, maybe we could start there. Well, could you be a little bit more specific? Uh, you know, if someone, for example, was listening to this also on YouTube and was like, what kinds of interactions would be possible? I think, you know, we can think about it on a more theoretical level, but, you know, is there, a, I mean, this is, you know, our fetch, but is there a potential app for which this would actually be useful? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the usual setting where I think of this uh, kind of uh, thing is closest to like uh, trading partner recommendations. So, I mean, that's perhaps most similar in concept to... Um, Open Bazaar or other, uh, uh, you know, reviews and ratings collecting marketplaces. I guess the difference between um, the thing that I'm pointing to there and, and those is that in um, in a system like Open Bazaar, you are publishing uh, for anyone to see um, the reviews that you have. There's no distinction of, say, a private review input to the system. Maybe maybe a way of being more specific about the um, idea here is to say. Um, you know, imagine a, a, a rating system where you would enter in reviews and those reviews would not be published. Um, they would be kept completely secret within the system. But what would be useful is that your friends would be able to get trading recommendations of, um, I don't know, either offers or it's still kind of hypothetical or, or you know, abstract here, but say they, they get recommendations of people to trade with on Open Bazaar. Um, but they don't necessarily learn that you know you're recommending this trader on Open Bazaar because you've interacted with them a bunch. It's um, less information disclosure required than that. The only thing you need to know in the context of this uh, you know rating or recommendation system is that based on your friends' input trust, uh, it, it would make sense for you to trade with them. You don't need to know the details of all of the transaction history of your friends. Um, so yeah, maybe that's my best example. Okay. Well, we already got a comment in the chat here that this particular example has reputation but no reciprocity i mean it is already kind of striking that people are more cooperative even if they know that they're friends um that there is no possibility for for reciprocity could you comment on this perhaps like um you know there is perhaps this uh reciprocity layer missing i guess let me interpret the comment um maybe uh two ways one would be about like how it works or the other would be about like what's an even lower level kind of a, a root cause explanation of why people would be um Uh, uh, friendly towards their friends. I mean, I, I think that there's a sense in which it's like um, like dilution of enforcement here. Like uh, in, in some sense, you will be. I, I think an explanation is that if you are, you know, generous or cooperative with your friends, it will tend to circle back and benefit you. Um, the difference between you know this enforce reciprocity and, and the more general one is basically whether you're able to um, associate it to a particular other. Uh, you know, individual making that decisions versus just having it uh, um, be the result of the cumulative total of all of your uh, interactions with um, people to whom you have a rating in, in such a system. Okay, we kind of like dove in on the deep end on like uh, the kind of example that I think will be really uh, insightful for many people here in this group because I think many people here already accept that you know, generally speaking, private transactions do have value also in normal settings, and this is like more of an um, kind of like. Uh, you know, a creative setting in which we could have more cooperation than we currently have um, with these types of transactions. But um, perhaps, you know, do you, have, do you have any other examples of these types of things? I know that you've done, um, because we're already there, so we're mm -hmm. in the deep end for a while before we sent again to shallow waters. But, um, you know, I think you published a little bit also on uh, what would be possible in a more of a health Uh, uh, like uh, even in a healthcare system with uh, more shared transactions um, and, you know, a few other like uh, games that, that you published there. And so perhaps you have a few ideas of alternative. There's a couple of examples that I, I would, um, I, I can explain the focus of what my research projects have been. So in, in uh, the decentralized systems lab, we've mainly been working on a couple of fairly general purpose platforms for, um, computing on confidential data. Uh, one of them is based on multi-party computation. This is this Honey Badger MPC line of work. And I could talk a little bit about our latest application, uh, Honey Badger Swap, which is kind of closer to shielded assets because it's a kind of um, you know DeFi swapping application, but that has extra confidentiality guarantees. For those who are not aware, uh, maybe say in one sentence or so, just what is a secure multi-party computation? 
Sure. So um, secure multi-party computation is um, a way of computing on secret data that, that's kept confidential because the data is secret shared. So secret sharing is, you can think of it as a kind of encryption, it's a kind of encoding for multiple servers. And you would need some majority of those servers to come together to be able to you know, disclose any of that information or, or leak it. But by carrying out a multi-party computation protocol, they can actually compute results on that encoded data without ever making it plain text or uh, collecting it anywhere. Um, it's a very flexible uh, programming environment where you can point to this is the data that's kept um, completely confidential. This is a query on that data that's disclosed um, as, a, as a kind of a theoretical framework. It's extremely um, you know, flexible in terms of what kinds of policies you can express and uh, gives you fault tolerant guarantees. Lovely. That's uh, a great explanation. And what kinds of things could this unlock? Sure. So um, one of the challenges of MPC is that compared to um, uh, uh, simply computing on something in plain text, it, it's pretty heavyweight. So this depends for sure on the application. That's true in some settings and, and, and not others. But um, performance is fairly challenging. So one of the, the main things that we've been trying to do is find applications where... Um, Uh, you can hide the cost or where the value of the transaction is so much that it's like a bulk transaction and a good fit. So I think of our use of MPC in um, this uh, Honey Badger swap line of projects as um, it's a little bit of like a scavenger's attitude. Like rather than try to contribute to the cryptography of solving this performance problem, we're going to you know scavenge for some uh, uh, you know uh, unexploited low-hanging fruit, basically, of where you can hide latency because the latency isn't quite so important or uh, and or where the um, overall costs aren't so important because they're used for, say, transactions that are settling a, a large amount of value. So the um, I guess I, I should also say in, in kind of um, where this MPC fits in compared to shielded transactions is that um, the use that we have of MPC is for applications where um, something like Zcash today transactions um, aren't enough. Basically, the, the suite of tools that are bulletin boards and commitments and zero-knowledge proofs. So the, the, the challenge with zero-knowledge proofs or the limitation of zero-knowledge proofs in that technology stack is that you have to have uh, some prover who has the secret information, the account balance, the transaction uh, uh, semantics, uh, you know, the sender-receiver of the transaction, Uh, the prover has to have that in order to compute the proof. And um, the availability of that data also begins and ends with the prover. If they delete their, their transaction history, there's no one in their keys, there's no one else on the network who's able to go um, revive that. Um, and that's great when that's um, uh, sufficient, but for tasks like um, auctions, anything that kind of fundamentally requires computing a function of many different parties' private inputs without kind of reconciling, you know, one party's in charge of seeing all of those inputs, then it seems that you need something beyond the bulletin board commitments and zero knowledge proofs. Um, and that's where uh, the MPC approach will fit in. So um, for concrete examples, the one that we've been looking at so far is basically um, uh, exchange applications like order books or automated market makers where uh, the transactions are potentially of high value, but we use the MPC to... Um, Uh, hide things like the uh, dark pool sides, uh, the size of dark pools, the amount of bids that aren't matched. Basically, it's to build a, a, an auction that's uh, effective enough for price discovery and what you need to use the, the uh, market mechanism for, but has a policy of disclosing as little information as possible about the individual trades, the um, bids made by users and in particular the um, residual bids that weren't matched because they're not part of the output of the auction um, but they they leak information about you know the rest of the bid that you might try to place in later auctions so um, can i can i break in andrew yeah go ahead um so i th i think i understand zero knowledge computations and i think you're talking about automated market makers, and I understand how uh, book orders work with an automated market maker. The piece that seems inconsistent that, that I don't understand what's going on is if you've got an automated market maker, uh, it has a price level and everybody wants to know the price level. And uh, so when a trade happens, that affects not just the individual who made the trade, it also affects the balances in the pools that uh, tell you what the price currently is. So if you're able to, I mean, it would seem like 
shielding the individual transaction um, doesn't help if you have to reveal the pool balances so that mm-hmm. people know what the price level is. So can you can you do both of those at the one at the same time, or are you uh, uh, pooling transactions somehow so you can't tell individual transactions while you're changing the pool? Yeah, it, perfect question. So um, I mean, the, the short answer is we get around this by batching. I mean, so the okay. problem is that inherently, if you're collecting transactions and providing price discovery, if you're providing price discovery at the same rate as transactions, like after every transaction, you see the updated price. Um, that's that batching is a perfect answer. Technology, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and but but that's I think a good example where this um, MPC would be required. It would be hard to do that kind of batching um, just with bulletin boards and zero knowledge proofs. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't want the the thing where someone commits to the transaction, then they're all batched, and then they run away before revealing or making use of of that uh, uh, trans committed transaction. So the MPC fits in basically as the buffer that holds all of the transactions while guaranteeing their availability before such time as they can be committed. And then you only reveal a price, you know, at the end of that batch. And there's a utility trade-off. It's hard for me to claim that this is like the uh, most important thing to fix exchanges. Um, It also has the advantage of providing for uh, preventing front running and, uh, you know, ordering extractable value attacks um, kind of along the way. There's other ways of preventing that that are easier than this, but, you know, this also does that. Um, But you get that trade-off between utility and, you know, the fine-greenness of the price discovery and um, the the confidentiality of the bids. Very cool. Well, uh, we also had recently uh, Gioris Cassis here from OpenMind, and they're working, you know, also on Federated Learning a bunch. So I don't know if you've looked into this at all, and it's totally fine if not, but I think, you know, pairing this type of computation, not only for exchanges, but even for allowing different parties that have different data uh, actually um, collaborate on their data and we're using AI, even if, they're, uh, if, if they don't trust each other. Um, that always seemed to me like such an incredible bottleneck that could unlock so much more cooperation across mutually distrusting part, uh, partners without really them having to give a bunch of the information up. I think that's especially interesting just because it potentially avoids more central, more centralization actors and it, and it is centralized when they could cooperate with the data without giving it away. Uh, you could potentially compensate for more of the, you know, a giant, uh, more of the data giants that are, that you currently see arising. So I'm super curious if you looked into this at all. This is a total plan, but uh, I think it's really interesting. No, yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that that uh, kind of speaks to the um, other side of what my research group do is doing in terms of these uh, platforms for, for confidential data. So we, we've, you know, the problem with the machine learning um, task is, okay, I, I, can answer, I can explain a little bit where, where the need for a platform fits in, in terms of federated learning. Um, so what I most want to see are... Um, techniques where you don't necessarily have to have the data broker like a hospital in the case of um, federated learning. So like the federated learning model is typically explained as, um, you know, each hospital has its own patients and it's okay holding the data of, uh, of those patients. Um, and you want the hospitals to be able to, you know, coordinate on machine learning without having to share with each other. And you achieve this by each, um, you know, hospital is able to do its own local computing based on the data that it has. So, we're working on this uh, um, kind of speculative project right now that's really interesting, but it's about wellness data rather than just healthcare data. And the distinction there is that um, healthcare data is for patients who have already shown up at the hospital because they were sick, and then they trusted the hospital with that data because they needed healthcare treatment, and that's a pretty fair, you know, they're, they're going to trust the hospital with data in that setting. But wellness data is for everyone. And the hospitals don't have these massive data sets of well people because the well people don't show up to the hospital to exchange data. So it's um, a slightly different tweak to the problem to look at, you know, what could you do with um, a much larger, you know, scale collection of data, including healthy people. And it's there that it seems more plausible that having, a, a, you know, a confidentiality technology for it would be um you know, something that would encourage them to to uh, to join more. So federated learning doesn't immediately solve that because, um you would want not even the hospital to have, you know, your entire data set and your genome uh, and, and whatever, just in order to uh, participate. So um, the approach that we are looking at is one based on on uh, trusted hardware enclaves like SGX. And this has been um, something that's fairly new for me to look into because uh, I my first exposure to SGX was many years ago, and I really disliked the trust model where it seems to rely on a fairly small number of trusted vendors. 
And they're kind of always in the loop. Like if they lose their attestation keys, then all of the bets have off. So it's not the good kind of like trusted setup once and done party, but like an ongoing party. And you have to trust the, you know, hardware, which is proprietary. And it's not even hardware. It's all like updatable, you know, firmware and micro codes. And we've already seen all of, um, you know, the uh, uh, attacks grow on them. And um, now I feel like everyone's kind of caught up to that. But now I'm done with being pessimistic about that. So I'm actually more excited by, um, I, I think, the interesting questions that are kind of more effective to tackle with SGX and related art hardware enclave approaches. And I think that it's a really good fit, actually, for this kind of, um, you know, how could you do federated learning for you know socially useful purposes like contributing to a big valuable data set but without having to collect all of the users plain text data you know in order to contribute to it and so the, the kind of use case and setting that we're looking at um you know hardware enclaves for is basically settings where you have you know a hospital is like a somewhat trusted party that you can rely on to for example um you know not just run sgx in the low effort co-tenant setting where it's most likely to be under attack because it's like shared hardware resources where anyone can run like a perfect enclave system. It would be safe to run co-tenant cloud services with it, but a practical one wouldn't. Um, so in a setting where there's some amount of trust of the, um, you know, IT security side of it, but still you want the benefit of, um, you know, being able to credibly show that you don't have a secret business model that's based on in bulk exploiting all of the data set and just giving the plain text away. I think that the trade-offs and setting is a little more favorable for it there. And um, for an extremely data-intensive task, like the um, training step in federated uh, you know, learning, um, I, I think that the, the performance benefits of then using trusted hardware enclaves versus a purely crypto solution are, are uh, kind of more appealing. So that's kind of the, the, the setting that we've been looking at um, for that. I would love for you maybe to, just to uh, introduce maybe two more quick concepts, and then I want you to tie them all together in like, <laughs> you know, um, let's say, a, a not utopian, but like a prototopian approach to what um, a future could look like if we implement them all well. So one thing that I'd be very curious for you to speak about is more on your work on decentralized identity, and maybe just to tie that in also um, the work on zero-knowledge proofs. I know that you've glanced over this very quickly, but um, uh, but but those are you know two other ingredients. And if there's any missing, then uh, please also... Uh, if you want to speak a little bit about that, why are they important? Um, uh, why are they important now? And then uh, after that, we tie that maybe to a long-term future. Yeah, identity is um, is really tricky. I'm really interested in the um, kind of uh, uh, effort of self-sovereign identity, which has taken me a long time to kind of come to grips with um, what it means. But but to me, the uh, kind of most immediately beneficial approach to uh, a decentralized identity comes from accepting that identity is something that authorities, a small number of them, likely governments, are going to be uh, accepted of, uh, of issuing, but that everything else kind of goes back to the you know, hands of users to be able to defend for themselves, and that'll lead to a lot of you know, better outcomes. So to me, self-sovereign as a name was always like a, a misleading one because what I really wanted was an identity system that has no authorities whatsoever. So I, I wish that self-sovereign only exclusively referred to users are in control of their credentials and certificates and also they're either their own authority issuer or are responsible for you know, authorizing and issuing some of um, um, you know, their friends. And, and I don't have as clear of a vision of how to um, explain how, how that will come. But, um, well, maybe the stuff that we talked about earlier about, um, you know, the potential to use vouching uh, uh, it relationships between friends who know each other in an external world as part of such a system. Maybe that's what, you know, where that would fit in there. You know, one thing that we're trying to um, also imagine here is like, how would long-term futures look like um, if these technologies are implemented versus not implemented? And You know, I think that many of them have been a long time coming, but now recently, I mean, really progress has been quite accelerating, at least from a layman's perspective that I have uh, on these technologies. So could you perhaps uh, draw us out like a future in, uh, in, in, in some color of, you know, what could we look forward to a pretty operative world if we use these technologies uh, much more and then afterwards we get into a little bit of a dystopia, but perhaps, you know, and, and give us some carriage. And of like, why, why would why, why should lay people care about this? What kinds of future cooperative arrangements would be possible with these types of technology? 
I think it's important to have a, um, to me, the most compelling, like a uh, uh, medium term future vision is, um, I think, closest to this idea of a, of a marketplace for sensitive data. So it, this is basically the idea that the reason why you should care about privacy and why adopting privacy enhancing tech is, is worthwhile is that um, every bit of data that you're leaking is basically, it's basically ground that you're seeding in terms of like negotiations. It, it's actually value that you're losing. And basically it's going to be used against you in some way. This is kind of a perspective that I've built up after playing with um, a lot of DeFi recently. And so I almost think of it as like data extractable value as, as an analog to um, you know, minor extractive value, extractable value in transactions. So be, the consequence of leaking your transactions to a mempool in DeFi before you get, get committed is that everyone gets to peek at your transactions and they just immediately use it against you. And it's, it's hilariously fun and pleasing. You can like watch yourself get sandwich attacked in real time for pennies uh, on any uh, smart contract system that has an automated market there. You can watch the dark forest interact with you with like a, a fishing hook in real time. It's great. Um, and I think thinking from that lens as a default, it's a little easier to go back and revisit this, like, you know, what's the ultimate goal of privacy? How does privacy fit into society more? And um, if you think of it that way, any, you know, transaction metadata that you're leaking, anything you're leaking at all, like it's either going to be ingested by an advertising AI and then used against you to extract you know, the most price out of you. So if you imagine the world where all of your data is leaked and it is fully weaponized and monetized against you, it's like you get the worst possible price you'd accept in every commercial interaction you have for the rest of your life. Just everything shown to you is like the worst price that it would accept. It knows that because it's, you know, trained on you so well with, you know, the freshest uh, uh, real time up to speed comprehensive data. And so from that perspective, it's a little easier to, to I think, now think of, um, you know, taking back control over our sensitive data as something that's, you know, for an economic value and a bottom line approach, if not for just the like defending activists and more on maybe abstract or at a, at a, at a distance kind of um, purpose for it. So I kind of think that this is now like a private DeFi, for example, will eventually be a path towards, um, you know, more deployed privacy where the privacy refers to, you know, by default, not leaking any of your data, um, having the ability to disclose it where it's useful to you um, or in the case of like, a, you know, genome data or something like you either use it for socially good purposes or for, you know, you're getting a good deal on it if it's going to be contributed in some way. So I, I think that's the... Um, that's my favorite narrative of the medium term, you know, utopia to look forward to. Yeah, it sounds great and pretty tangible. Um, to make it more tangible, uh, one person in the chat would love to know your perspective uh, on proof of humanity uh, of the, on the proof of humanity project. And um, when we talked about decentralized identity. Yeah, so um, one thought that I've been um, having recently, and I don't know how to. Um, I don't know quite what to do with this, but uh, I'd want to talk it about in this context. Um, I would love for a desired feature of a, of a truly decentralized identity project to have um, to have a, a jubilee friendly quality. Like you should be able to reset your identity entirely and re-roll with a completely fresh identity in the system that's you know untethered to your original one in any way. Um, and this is a problem for. Um, you know, this kind of has its origin in um, like receipt freeness and, and like uh, anti-coercion in um, e-voting schemes, which can be fairly tricky. So there the attack model is someone's taken your keys, like any you know secret info that you've had, they've just physically taken it from you. And, and the, the system design goal then is, and even in that case, you still show up by some secondary path and go in person and cancel your old vote and, and you know, replace it with this new fresh vote. The system that has this property is kind of a, a defended against kinds of coercion behaviors. So the, the thing that I would want in a decentralized identity is I can always refresh my identity, um, you know, from scratch, even if I've lost my keys for it. And um, still every use of my identity would be um, either fully anonymous or, or entirely fine grained up to me, you know, which information I disclose from it. Um, so my, my, you could imagine like being able to you know, leave your past behind in one town, move to a new town, entirely fresh identity, everything your name left behind, but still you can show up and somehow, whether you go to a, a physical place or a DMV or some, you know, dark DMV alternative, um, you would regenerate an ID that you can use for, you know, basic services or basic income or, you know, access to computer equipment or something like that. 
Very cool. Um, I know that, for example, a few folks have been talking a little bit about uh, pseudonymity and maybe having transferable reputation on uh, even, even with your pseudonyms, even across platforms or something. A long, long time ago, uh, Mark Miller and Eric wrote uh, on um, basically that positive reputation systems still work even in pseudonymous uh, economies because, uh, you know, positive reputation is... <laughs> Uh, um, and you can even transfer that with your pseudonyms, while a negative one, obviously, uh, it's easy to just create a new one. Uh, and so I'm curious to see whether um, you have any ideas on whether or not reputation or like whether or not or in what context context should reputation or could it carry over with pseudonyms? A few people have, you know, argued in favor of a reputation being transferable even maybe between different decentralized social networks or something if people have said well yeah. you know why be that why, why should it and yeah maybe you've all about this okay yeah i have a bunch of thoughts of this we'll, we'll see how coherently these uh, uh come out in this way um i mean so there's definitely something to a pseudonym that develops reputation on its own just from its own merits and this is also one of the fun things that was like uh, predicted a lot in um uh, these early papers, like you mentioned, now you just see them happen in, in like uh, the DeFi world in this kind of a uh, dramatic scale of, um, say, projects with completely pseudonymous founders, and um, you know the mapping many to one, one to many is um, you know unclear, and yet these uh, completely pseudonymous entities build up such strong reputations from their writing and their good works of code and everything that they develop a pretty significant amount of trust. So, um, you know, I think that that's kind of the, the limit of, of the pseudonym identity, though, is that it's entirely based on the um, uh, it's entirely based on the actions of that pseudonym. It doesn't bring in the reputation from external uh, uh, you know, places where it might have originated. And I think that um, I, I, I do think that there's like an over-reliance on fairly simplistic reputation, even the implicit kind, not the like reputation systems, but in, in like the DeFi world, just in the, the amount of trust that many of the most widely used systems have are extremely vulnerable to rug pulls. Rug pulls is just the trendy term for, you know, the, the trusted third party. It's, it's not a subtle attack. It's just they walk away with all of the money because they're the admin and that's what they're, they're, they're set up to do. And they're an anonymous character. So you know, but you can trust them based on that they're an old anonymous character. They've been, you know, producing writing for, for years. Um, I, I think that there's an over-reliance and it, it basically just points to like the, um, you, you know, we're so early and there aren't really this, these great solutions yet. So even like crappy reputation is still um, um, interesting when it, it's implied in this DeFi setting. So the stuff that I'm most interested in, I, I do think involves this kind of quality of linking in, in some way, external reputation as well. So, I mean, maybe the way to reconcile these is imagine a pseudonym that has its own reputation from its own, you know, posts and writing and, and works and all, but it also is supercharged by its, um, you know, ability to link in existing trust in a, a perhaps real world person or someone with a more public uh, identity. What the, um, what, what you should expect to get from the, you know, shielded transactions platform is, you know, the ability to make use of that external information without actually just disclosing it, like just disclosing the information is always overkill. And, and I think the ideal systems that we're, we're, we're building and, you know, the technology is kind of well-suited to, um, the default policy would be disclose as little information as possible. So I think that we'll be seeing more uses in decentralized identity as well as in other, other kind of cryptocurrency projects where you can, you know, using zero knowledge, you can make use of external contexts like the real world without actually just having to disclose it and publish it. Thanks. I think, uh, you know, we already talked a little bit about the dystopia in a more personal, you know, consumer setting, really. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that this podcast is also trying to do is just make people more aware of, you know, the pretty, really negative futures that you could be walking into where at the point that we realize how negative they are, it, it is too late to add privacy, like icing on yeah. the cake. Um, and so, you know, I think many people here are motivated by that um, risk uh, and, and by that threat, which is why they're working on it, but not everyone really knows about it. So perhaps, you know, there, is, there, is there a good um, either example or is there just like a, a future that we should really be trying to avoid that it, in, if we just continue like we currently do and um, with many of our default systems, we could be, you know, you know like sleepwalking into like, are there any specific bits that you're worried about? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. I think um, I'm not great at answers to, um, I think, the, the, the most important things to um, kind of uh, anticipate or predict. 
I don't have enough of the, uh, you know, broad world knowledge to be able to say something useful about the, what the most plausible, you know, next dys, uh, dystopic events would be. Um, I, I could say, I could explain a, a, a kind of path towards that, um, uh, that is uh, what we, if, if things keep going in the same way in terms of, um, uh, I think, uh, blockchain technology efforts, I think that there are a few important pitfalls. I, I basically think that what's happening is um, uh, what little I learn about like real world institutions, governance, financial institutions, and, and, and how they work is that there are so many parts of their designs that have privacy as an unintended side effect. And this is the, the, the same observation you see a lot with like, um, you know, sharing of law enforcement data. Like often there's privacy built in because every individual district has its own completely incompatible system software. There's no policy that says we choose to, you know, defend privacy for, you know, these class of information, but you have privacy by accident because that's just how the systems originated. And I think this is basically pervasive in um, banking as well and in, in financial institutions. So I think that the, um, you know, the DeFi world is move fast and break things. That's not really right because they're, they're, they're move fast and build something entirely parallel and separate. So it's not, you know, uh, it's not exactly breaking things, but it, but it's building to the side of them. Um, but it's super weird what you see with um, uh, DeFi right now, where it's almost in terms of privacy, the full, you know, you know, everything right now is fully published and the most exciting projects have these, you know, full transparency logs of every transactions. Uh, uh, you know, it's ridiculous how, how it's like, it'll have to get much worse in terms of privacy before it gets better. Um I think that there's a big risk of relying on blockchain technology automatically fixing privacy. And it's a, it would be a mistake of attribution where if the only reason why we have existing privacy is because there was no policy choice, but it's a mistake. Um, I think the next systems that get billed by inattentive blockchain engineers who aren't, you know, paying attention to this, but simply following, you know, use this technology, it cryptographizes, you know, your entire application. I think it's very likely that we'll end up with a bunch of, you know, very dystopic blockchain systems that present rigidity, like excuses not to fix problems for people, like your name's spelled wrong in this blockchain. Well, that's immutable. So, you know, there's no way to fix it. It's permanent. Um, while at the same time having, you know, the most completely predictable, deliberate backdoors built in just because that's the obvious way to build it. And um, I, I think it's really pervasive, the kind of simple attitude that just adding some kind of cryptography to it, you know, fixes privacy. You know, of course, that's wrong. But I, I think that's a that's a sort of mirror term pitfall that I hope we can avoid. Yeah, I mean, especially as near term, uh, like, you know, more commerce will actually move onto those chains and will then actually be and potentially trace back to your actual physical address, you know, hopefully we may not have to see the first, like actually physical extortions of kidnapping for people to start caring about this. And yeah. like given how much money people probably made by having early transacted on public blockchains, uh, I think this is like a real terrible risk uh, that yeah, we maybe we can avoid by just uh, switching, but probably uh, people need to wake up, need, need to have this insane wake up call for actually starting to care. And then it may be today. Yeah, and it's yeah, uh, more, more volumes, but uh, Eugene had, uh, like, I think, a more constructive question here. <laughs> yeah, so I guess uh, building on what you were just saying, Andrew, I mean, where does the, st where does the change start? Because I think there's a lot of enthusiasm coming into Web3 in the last decade of like, ooh, new incentives and platforms equals the world's better. And we're seeing that some things just boil down to fundamental human problems, and it might not be as simple as just slapping a new tech tool and and things are better. So where do you think uh, that do you think this might end up coming from sort of the cultural or more individual level side where the change actually begins? Or what do you see as actually the starting point of us getting to a future that might actually embrace that at scale? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the thing that makes it really difficult to, um, you know, anticipate is, um, you know, I don't think that technology can solve everything. And so clearly like the biggest wins or, you know, Many huge potential wins to focus on would be on like changing policies to you know guarantee privacy provisions to uh, uh, to try to. But I, ultimately, I think that those are those are hard for me to know how to anticipate or how to directly try to influence. So I always feel sort of um, you know stuck there. 
So I, I'm excited about this. Like, uh, uh, I think that there's kind of cognitive room in the cryptocurrency world for the privacy technologies to be adopted. And I'm still the, the most optimistic thing that I think ever happened was getting to see how quickly uh, all of the blockchain engineers were able to wrap their minds around zero knowledge proofs. And now that's a pretty much like an accepted part of the engineering toolbox. Um, so to me, that work has already been done. And I think we're going to see, you know, the benefit of that play out. So basically, even though there's this like worse before it gets better in terms of like spewing huge amounts of new public financial transaction data that weren't even previously there. Now there's this huge bizarre data set. Um, even though that seems rid like ridiculous and going in the wrong direction, I, I think the like, you know, cognitive work of showing that part of this stack includes this technology that you that's right there. You just it's not the first thing that you used, but everyone knows that zero knowledge proofs come next after you're good at like the plain text level of uh, smart contract development now. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that the the kind of gradual path towards this um, where like shielded assets and um, things Zcash do fit in. I think is, you know, I think increasingly effective and, you know, less distance. I think soon it'll basically be people know that they should be using privacy enhancing tech and shielded transactions. And maybe there's a long period where they still don't because, you know, it's easier not to, but at least they know that they should. And, and that's, I think, like a, a, a marker of the shift towards, you know, shortly after that. And I think more people will be able to. So again, almost like privacy is almost like a collateral advantage just by virtue of the fact that many of the ZK uh, enabled like um, as solutions are just uh, more effective <laughs> and uh, will allow you to do a few more things. Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, well, you've obviously worked on this uh, for quite a while. And I think ZK has really like uh, had a really strong uh, focus on this like from, from the get-go. Now we see much more uh, interest in the space. But could you uh, talk a little bit more about like what's happening on, uh, you know, the ZK uh, um, uh, on the Zcash front, or what's happening generally in um, in that ecosystem? Like, what kinds of uh, technologies can we see uh, maybe coming online there, or like what are um, future, um, yeah, what are future like applications or um, or just improvements on um, uh, on Zcash that we could look forward to here? Yeah, there, there's. Um... There's too many for me to do the, uh, you know, best job of um, uh, uh, explaining all of them. I tend to have a fairly kind of a focused and narrow view on just a handful of, um, I mostly get to work on the very fun science-y projects. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the most important things that are upcoming are, um, first of all, the uh, uh, Halo Orchard upgrade. I think that that's like, a, a, in a way, it's like the plumbing detail because it's, you know, replacing something that worked with something that still works, but, you know, works better in a bunch of ways. Um, but to me, resolving the uh, trusted setup problem is just like the uh, uh, it's such a cool cornerstone on this long path towards um, making, you know, generic and flexible zero knowledge proofs, um, you know, that also are adequately performant and also get rid of all of the, um, you know, most unpalatable um, you know, setup assumptions. So from a theoretical and, um, you know, security perspective, I think that the, you know, Orchard upgrade is a really cool achievement. Um, and I think shortly upcoming in, um, at least I know on the Zcash Foundation's, um, you know, goals include um, looking at uh, shielded assets or UDAs. So and there's like a path towards improving the, the programmability of Zcash. And I think it's pretty plausible that the way that that starts is through, um, you know, a limited functionality upgrade that's just based on being able to either have... Um, you know, versions of assets on other systems, whether they're synthetics or, or uh, bridged or some other kind of mechanism. I think that that's, um, um, that's the thing that I'm most excited about upcoming. Very cool. Yeah, Zuko actually presented on Halo here in the group with Howard, um, uh, presented on uh, Alio. Uh, oh, excellent. Uh, that project uh, and uh, that uh, um, the, the DeFi pro problem that you mentioned. So very cool. Uh, we have Mark Miller with a question. Mark, do you want to chime in? Yeah. Um, uh, hi, Andrew. Uh, the when you say that the blockchains in general have come to understand that uh, zero knowledge proofs is kind of the next step to provide the untraceability, generally what what we've seen practically deployed is the uh, use of zero knowledge proofs in a cryptocurrency like way rather than shielding uh, general purpose Turing complete uh, smart contract computation. Uh, and I know that the, that in theory that the zero knowledge proofs can protect that, and a lot of them work, work's been being done, uh, especially with that um, uh, new language Cairo. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm wondering what you can say about what what is currently uh, practical and what is currently actually being used uh, with regard to shield, shielding general purpose computation. Uh, yeah, I think that that's um, that's a great question, but I don't think I have um, good answers for what's currently in use in terms of um, you know more general purpose usages of that. The ones that I've seen that this probably reflects my like uh, recent. Uh, narrowed focus in DeFi style applications. So yeah, I also only see the ones that are, you know, cryptocurrency, you know, mixing in some way. And I haven't seen as many, you know, in use that are doing something more, more sophisticated kind of from the, you know, most well-known literature, I'd expect um, anonymous credentials of some kind to be used more. It very well may be that anonymous credentials are, are used, even if not by that name, by some of the decentralized identity projects. Um, where you know the mechanism lets you disclose something about your credential you got from somewhere without the whole thing. Um, if more of those are in use that are using the generic ZK, then um, I, I don't know the best examples to point to, though. Yeah, you already mentioned a little bit what's coming on the line with and uh, things Zcash there in the future. Um, I would perhaps, yeah, like for you to draw out um, uh, maybe what what is kind of like an open challenge that you know you would still love for someone to solve. Like if, you know, you could put a bounty on something, you're like, this is really hard. No one's really paying enough attention, um, but I would really love for this to be solved. It can be technical. It can be something like someone should, should really draw more attention on X, Y, Z. Um, is there something where you just like, this is poking around your brain and uh, and you'd like to outsource it if only you could? Huh. That is a, um, that's a pretty cool question too. We we are thinking of doing bounties for these podcasts, so to actually generate people to submit answers and uh, if they want to, and then have people have bounties paid on this uh, if this works well. So this is one opportunity for you to just make a wish. That's not a good way to do that. Um, yeah, I'd probably have to send something in as a video soundbite. Maybe I could do that if I think of an appropriate answer for that. Okay, totally uh, great. Um, so, you know, that the idea is really like, you know, for podcast to A, just give, um, yeah, I guess educate folks a little bit more, but then also, you know, to have like, if there are specific bits that people can already contribute to or like things that they could solve, like making it as actionable as possible, I think could be nice for those who want to. But, um, I also would love to know, um, maybe as a, you know, maybe as a devil's advocate argument, I don't know if you have a great answer to this, but, um, you know, maybe still manning the side of not shielded transactions. Like, are there any, you know, risk that you see that we should be wary about that, um, that where you actually think that, okay, um, folks have a point here. We need to, as a community, guard against this better so that, uh, when, you know, things go wrong, um, they don't go massively wrong and to maybe cause a backlash against shared transactions. Is there anything where, yeah. That's yeah. That, that is a really good question. And, um, yeah, I don't have the uh, greatest answer for, for that. I mean, um, there's so many like uh, legitimate and kind of good goals that come from the um, you know same place that says oh let's not have shielded transactions or let's um, you know let's have more things public so that you know law enforcement and social policies can can work either easier or more effectively. Um, I, I spend some time thinking about this in the context of um, like central bank digital currencies, also trying to anticipate like what um, you know what they things they would find in terms of trying to compete with uh, cryptocurrencies for having all the good aspects of, um, you know, cryptography and blockchain design while also meeting all of their goals. And, and so these kind of come up as well. Um, so while I don't have a good answer, I, I think the, um, the the only thing I think is a useful reaction that I have is about, um, I guess it relates to what I said also about the the, the kind of danger of, you know, privacy failures by, by accident. Um, I think that there's some expectation in the some like uh, mistaken expectation in the cryptocurrency developer world that the way that cryptocurrencies do it in a decentralized way and and say um, you know ideally with like the full uh, 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 support for shielded functionality um, that that banks won't be able to or you know mainstream institutions won't be able to um, you know compete with those because they'll be stuck using um, only the uh, you know full backdoor transparent um, uh, kind of alternative. So I, I basically think that there's um, an underestimation of the um, design space. So I think that a, a really likely outcome is that there's 
quite a lot of flexible, you know, hybrid privacy mitigations where, for example, and I think this is the direction that like ViewKeys and Zcash are headed and I can expect there to be a whole lot more, um, you know, variations of those. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that uh, institutions will find it, um, you know, sufficient to basically be able to require you to make certain kinds of disclosures, um, but still in a more limited way. Let me give the better example that I think is kind of interesting and, and you know, positive to, to, you know, look forward to. I think that there's like a good precedent for um, being able to prove that, say, your portfolio isn't systemically risky, that your portfolio isn't in such a lopsided fashion that it's a problem for the rest of the you know, society market health. Um, but to prove that requires a zero-knowledge proof. It doesn't require you to actually disclose you know, that entire thing. This is in a hypothetical future world where you have zero-knowledge proofs about all of your you know, DeFi positions is, is where that kind of fits in. So, I mean, that's an example of something that can achieve the social goal in, in some limited case, you know, with, with um, you know, without having to do that disclosure. So, I mean, that's on the positive side. Um, but I also think that that's, um, you know, I, I think that there's going to be really steep competition that cryptocurrencies face from, um, you know, mainstream institutions. And in the best case scenario, it's like competition that, you know, results in both being well. So I think that like we'll have eventually good privacy mitigations that are like socially mandated, like laws require that you don't just, you know, have to be compelled to disclose more than the minimum amount of information for this, you know, well-motivated social tasks. Um, and so I think like the ability to have the entirely shielded, uh, you know, cryptocurrency developed side is basically going to, um, in any case, serve as the important competition that, you know, and any good thing that happens in terms of privacy mitigations, I think, in, in future systems that incorporate blockchains will, you know, have their competition from uh, decentralized cryptocurrencies uh, as the cause of it. Great. I know we're at the hour. Eugene has maybe one final uh, question, which is, again, on actionability. And uh, if, if possible, if you could tie some of uh, Zcash's future work into that uh, answer, that would be fantastic. Uh, Eugene, do you want to ask away? Yeah, the quick question is, you know, whether it's in, in Web3 specific or just talking privacy preserving tech more broadly, if you're talking to someone who's not a deep technologist and just starting on their path and learning about this, what do you see as a, as a good way to actually get to interact and play around with this so that they get more excited and, and really I want to get to the point of understanding the importance and depth of this? At this point, Zuko always uh, asks people to download a Zach wallet. <laughs> Yeah, have you had um? So I, I spend most of my time um with um uh when when I show people um you said this is for non technologists, so right? So um I mean I I think that the everyone should be playing with at least Solidity smart contracts on something like Remix. Um, I, I really like to do this like intro kind of demo of starting from nothing on a testnet. You get some coins from a faucet. Um, but then the next thing that you do isn't stop there, but actually pull up the you know live code editor. And then you start by sending a transaction to an unknown contract, just because that's getting the interaction of it out of the way. And that's important to kind of understanding it. But the next step is then opening up the Remix browser and then writing code that you send to that contract and have it execute. You get to play with this, you know, real world get, getting sandwich attacked by the dark forest is like the next step on that. Um, but to me, the, the most exciting thing and it's then the gateway to the privacy tech because, you know, signatures are right there. But I think like the, the, the current ecosystem of smart contracts, I spent a lot of time recently basically looking at all of these DeFi clones. So I have this kind of half amused and half very cynical, you know, view of them, but they're all EVM clones of, you know, the exact same kind of swapping features, like their palette swaps, color backgrounds change, all the mascots are different. Um, but seeing like the rapid copy paste and, and iterate a little bit, you know, kind of behavior, it, it's just such a weird, um, you know, complicated and rapidly evolving space. It's really interesting to see um, programs written by completely unrelated developers, each with their own boundaries set by those developers, but then interacting on this public system. Um, it makes no sense from the privacy perspective, but at, at the, the, the trade-off of that is like there's no better time to get started in it because everything is just so visible and transparent and um, you know, easy to access. So I think people should be learning Solidity as a second programming language, if not a first programming language. And um, for sure, anyone who's, who's not a technologist themselves but, but um, you know, should, is willing to try should you know, try, try writing your first smart contract program and see it on a public network. And, and I think that's the... You won't be the same afterwards. Cool. Uh, one final bit. 
anything that you're doing uh, personally, security-wise, that uh, no one, like that other people really aren't doing, but really should be doing, like, like really just like, you know, as an actionable thing that I could be doing after this call, like, how could I protect my health? Yeah, that would probably be the moment when I would say pull out uh, Zcash and download that. Um, yeah, if you want to do something to protect your privacy, I think the most important thing is to um, make zero knowledge proofs. I, I think it's a simple kind of, um, you know, training comment in a way. Uh, my, my, that previous answer was about the getting the practice doing smart contract programming a couple of years ago before smart contract programming was this much fun. It, it would have been, you know, scan a QR code and use a public key. And I think right now, um, you know, making a zero knowledge proof is uh, the best way that you can participate. So making a Zcash transaction from a phone wallet, that counts. And that's the you know easiest and most accessible way. The next step after that is to probably download one of the, um, you know, smart contract integrations with those like uh, Zocrates or uh, 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 yeah, that's probably the one that I would start with or Sircom basically. And then, you know, then do both, then make a smart contract and put a zero knowledge proof there. That can be done today on a test net, but still a public test network for, you know, pennies, if any transaction fees. Um, and to me, that that's like, uh, uh, I never thought, you know, years ago that that day would come and that's pretty cool. Yeah. We see the same here in the chat where it's almost like how far we've come. I'm sure. I mean, you know, I have been around and especially not in the community, but, uh, it's just, I think really must be very rewarding for many of you guys to see that suddenly um, people like me can experiment with this. So very, very cool. Uh, thank you so, so much, Andrew. Thanks for staying a little longer. Thank you everyone for joining. This was really, really fun. I can't wait for our next, okay. I, I like co-hosting a podcast with all of you guys. This is really <laughs> Okay. Thanks, Andrew. And I will wait for your song, but on the challenge, uh, but I think for now, uh, I'll see you guys for the next one. We also have more focus groups where all of you guys actually get to brainstorm with each other. But thanks. Uh, this was really, really great. And um, yeah, I hope you all have a lovely day and see you at the next one. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for having me, everyone. Bye-bye. I'm happy for the chance to present this bounty for development of shielded technologies. So this bounty is about making airdrops that work to uh, shielded transaction pools rather than to transparent uh, shielded pools. So this would mean everyone who holds coins in a shielded transaction pool, say Zcash Sapling, for example, uh, is able to redeem a corresponding amount of um, newly airdrop tokens on some new chain or, or token platform uh, per your choice. And the, the goal of this bounty is to do it in a way that still preserves the same underlying privacy of the existing shielded transaction ledger. So Redeeming your airdrop shouldn't create any linkability hazards with um, your transactions on the underlying shielded pool. I think this is a great uh, a technical challenge for someone who wants to get experience working on SNARKs, zero-knowledge proofs. Um, it's an approachable problem because it can start from existing examples, but involves uh, uh, modifying the cryptography, getting your hands dirty, so to speak. Um but the goals of it are pretty clear because airdrops are fairly commonplace and popular in the transparent world. But um, doing the shielded version of that um, is an interesting open challenge. I have just a couple of illustrations to explain why this is an interesting technical challenge, but an approachable one and give some hints of how to get started. Um, so to start with, we know how airdrops on an ordinary transparent ledger work. You, you take a snapshot of the ledger, like the account balances, unspent transaction outputs, um, at some time. And it works because you're repurposing the exact same public keys and digital signature algorithm and secret keys defined by the parent chain. You're just repurposing them in the airdrop chain. So the signatures are the same. You just sign an airdrop redeeming transaction. It's interpreted on the airdrop chain rather than the parent chain. But the signatures and secret keys are all the same is what makes these work. In a, the shielded pool setting, it's a little more complicated because the unspent account balances, they aren't in plain text there um, in these commitments in the leaves of a note commitments tree for a shielded ledger. And so to spend them, what you're doing is making a zero knowledge proof that you know the corresponding secret keys, um, that the nullifier that you're revealing is a unique nullifier associated with that coin, that it's one of the coins in the tree, but you're not revealing which. And so to imagine doing an airdrop to this, you would start by using the same zero-knowledge proof. But the first problem is you would have to do something uh, about the nullifier. You can't just reveal the same nullifier uh, as would be revealed when redeeming it on the 
parent chain on the Zcash chain, because that would mean that when you redeem the airdrop, you publish a nullifier. It exactly corresponds to a, the same nullifier, a transaction containing the same nullifier on the parent chain. That would create a linkability between the airdrop and transactions on the parent chain. And that the goal of this is to preserve the privacy, preserve unlinkability, and not reveal that. So that's the first challenge. And the second one is to do something about the exact amount. You wouldn't want, if you redeem multiple airdrops for a transparent um, amount of airdrop token, you wouldn't want that to reveal that these two airdrop redemptions came from spending the same note with exactly that account balance. So just to recap, um, the goals of of this bounty are to make an airdropping mechanism that works for the existing Zcash uh, shielded ledger. And the, the point of it is to preserve the underlying privacy guarantees of the existing shielded ledger. And and ideally, it should support multiple airdrops, even that are redeemed based on the same notes uh, in the underlying chain. And all of these together should be entirely unlinkable between each other. Uh, So that's all. I hope you find this um, an interesting and engaging uh, challenge to work on and wish you good luck with it. 